If you're a parent, you remember these famous words multiple times. Are we there yet? Right? You're traveling and that's the question that they ask, oh, maybe 10 miles out of town or something like that. There's another question you have probably heard as a parent along the way. Words like these. What are we going to do next? Right? We did this. What are we going to do next? I say that to say this. We're not unlike the children. Quite honestly, we think that way. And it's a part of our culture. We've been trained to. We've been trained to think about the future. We've been trained to plan for the future. We've been trained to look ahead. Nothing wrong with that. But with that forward-looking approach to life, sometimes we forget to look backward. And today, we look backward. We join the people of God in this passage, and we remember the Passover. And we remember so that we will never forget. And we remember so that we can understand. The details of the story have just been read. But let's rehearse them just briefly. Moses says to the people, I want you to celebrate this activity called the Passover, the first month of the beginning of your year. As a matter of fact, there was more to it than that. Moses was in effect saying, I want you to have a new calendar. Here's your new calendar. Your year begins on this month because it was in this month that I brought you out of Egypt. He said, I want you to celebrate this on the 10th day of the first month. And this celebration is to have at its center a lamb that's been sacrificed. It's a feast for the whole family. As a matter of fact, he gave very specific instructions concerning the lamb and the feast. And one of the things he said to the people, you'll recall, is if the lamb that you have is actually too big for your family to have for a feast, share it with another family. Because the lamb that you sacrifice and are going to have for a feast, none of that lamb should be left over. So if you're a small family, share it. What you may not have noticed, we frequently overlook, is that the lamb could have been a goat. A family could have sacrificed a goat in remembrance of this day, as well as a lamb. But in either case, the goat or the lamb sacrificed and feasted upon, reflecting backward to the original Passover, either animal had to be a firstborn without blemish. Absolutely no outward flaws on this animal. The animal was to be slaughtered at twilight as the sun was going down. It was to be roasted together with bitter herbs, a particular kind of recipe. It was to be eaten with bread, but bread that did not include yeast. And at the end of the feast, there should be, the text says, nothing left over. You're to consume it entirely the entire lamb. As a matter of fact, the text tells us that if the family had not been able to consume the entire lamb, they should burn the rest of it in the morning. 
completely obliterate the feast. They were also supposed to take hyssop from that lamb and dip it in the lamb's blood and use this hyssop branch, which we think stands for purity in other places in the Scripture, and put blood over the doorposts and on the side of the doors as well. And then, notice what he said to them about how they were going to eat the meal. It's fascinating. He said, this is the way I want you to eat the meal. I want you to eat the meal with your cloak, long robe, tucked into your belt. We don't think about that much because most of us wear pants. But they were robes. And whenever they were preparing, either to run or to do battle or to do some serious work, they would tuck their cloak into their belt so their legs were free and could move as well as possible. He said, I want you to tuck your coat into your belt while you eat this lamb. And I want you to strap on your sandals. I don't want you to eat barefoot. I want you to be ready to walk right out the door. In addition to that, I want you to hold in your hand while you eat your staff. This meal, he said, is to be in remembrance of what happened. Because on that day, God delivered you. And in haste, you left Egypt. An interesting story. The story also has other parts of remembrance um, that they were instructed on. They said, when you remember this day, you people of Israel, note that the passage is really written for future generations. Not necessarily just for the people there. More importantly, for the people who would look back. He says, when you look back, I want you to look back this way. I want you to celebrate just as they did, bread without yeast, for seven days. It's a seven-day feast. I want you, furthermore, he said, to remove all yeast from your house. Don't even let there be yeast in your cupboards. I'm uh, not Jewish, of course, and I've never celebrated a Jewish Passover, and I don't think technically I could as a non-Jew. But what I've heard about Jewish Passovers those that are very stringently observed, one of the ceremonies they participate in is they take like a broom, such as a hyssop branch, and go through the house and dust the corners of the rooms, symbolically and maybe more than figuratively, to make sure there's no yeast in the room. I want you to follow this, Moses says, for generations. And on that week... It was a week of a feast. I want you to do no other kind of work except this, the work that's involved in the preparation of the feast. It was a week of vacation. It was a week of Christmas, of remembrance. For future generations, this celebration is for your benefit so you can remember. Now that's the story in a nutshell. But I want to transport you ahead, hundreds and hundreds of years, to the time of Jesus Christ. Jesus was born as a Jewish boy, went through all the rituals that a devout Jewish family would have put him through, including circumcision on the eighth day. And from his earliest recollection, he would remember this feast. 
he with brothers and sisters would have celebrated this feast that Moses talked about. My imagination runs wild at this point. I hope it's my spiritual imagination. (laughs) When did it dawn on that boy, Jesus, that the Passover feast that he celebrated was about him? When did it dawn on him that he eventually would be the Passover lamb? I wonder. Jesus would have celebrated this feast as a child. And then we hear from Scripture that at one point, he told the disciples, I long to be able to celebrate the feast of the Passover with you. So let's celebrate together. You know what we might surmise is that it wasn't the first time he'd celebrated Passover with them. We think of it that way, but it was roughly in the third year of the ministry with the disciples that we read this passage. It's likely that he'd celebrated it with them before. But on this occasion, it was entirely new. I want to read you the story from Luke's Gospel, chapter 22. Then came the day of the unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. And Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Where do you want us to prepare for it, they asked. He replied, as you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters. That must have seemed kind of odd. A guy with a water jar and you just started following him. And say to the owner of the house, the teacher asks, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large upper room, all furnished. Make preparations there. They left and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. Maybe doing some of these things that we talked about. Maybe sweeping out the house to make sure no yeast was there. Then the hour came, and Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table, and he said to them, I've eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and and said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took the bread and gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. What must they have thought? For the most part, they were Jewish disciples. Likely that most of them, from their earliest recollection, could remember Passover meals. And now, as a disciple of this man Jesus, he literally places himself in the parameter of the meal and redefines it as about him. How stunning that must have been the first time. This is my body, this is my blood. 
I can't imagine what they must have experienced on that day. Odd words, an ancient ritual applied to himself. I wonder when it dawned on them. We know it later did. That the fulfillment of the words of John the Baptist were about to take place. John the Baptist, some three years before this event, when he saw Jesus in the wilderness where he was baptizing people for repentance and forgiveness of sins, he pointed to Jesus who was walking across the landscape and said, look, there goes the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. What? No one had ever heard those words uttered. The disciples had not experienced Passover yet with those words. It was the first time. I wonder when they thought about those words and reflected on them. At this first meal? Only later? What happened later is the disciples began to own the reality of this meal, this Passover meal, is being about Jesus. As a matter of fact, Paul puts it so explicitly when he says that Jesus became our Paschal Lamb, the one who takes away the sins of the world. You know what's true of the history of Christianity? For the most part, it's a reinterpretation of an old covenant. Jesus begins the whole thing. He enters into this old covenant and he stands alongside the teachers of the law and he reinterprets the whole thing and frequently takes all the law and the prophets explicitly, sometimes so subtly, and points them back to himself. And in effect says, all that back there was about me. Paul picks up that theme, as do the other apostles. And they look at the scriptures, and quite frankly, sometimes mysteriously, we don't understand how they came to the conclusion. They use passages and they say, in effect, see, this was about Jesus. And I have to admit, sometimes I shake my head and say, say again? How? Where did you come to that conclusion? But they did. Maybe it was because they had multiple moments with Jesus, like this one at the Passover, where he unfolded the Old Testament Scriptures and pointed out to them, this leads to me. Maybe it was under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit only later that they looked back at his words and they connected it with the Old Testament Scriptures and it was an aha moment, this is about him. The history of the church has always been about that. And for that reason, we seize on the Passover, instructed by Jesus to do so, and see Jesus as the Passover lamb, the Messiah of God. The ancient uh, history of the Passover is now a new celebration for the Christian church. The intent of the Passover to begin with, apart from deliverance from slavery, was for future generations to look back and remember the hand of God. And in the same way, this table that we call the Lord's Supper is much the same. 
an exercise for us to enter into in order to be able to do what we do not do best. Look back and find meaning. So frequently, we grasp for meaning in the future instead of looking back to find our true identity. And this meal calls us to do that. In both cases, when we think of the Passover, when we think of the Lord's Supper, we remember that at the heart of it is a sacrificial lamb and blood. And we remember, like the writer of the book of Hebrews, that it was Christ's blood that redeemed. Hebrews' author puts it this way, when Christ came as the high priest of the good things that are here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not man-made, that is to say, not a part of this creation. He did not enter by the means of blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. But how much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. In fact, says the author, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood. And without blood, there is shedding of blood. There is no forgiveness for sins. Both stories remind us that without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. And this particular story that we celebrate reminds us that we're redeemed from sin and death through the blood of Christ. The importance of remembering. I don't want to talk about the future today. I really don't want to think about how this text necessarily, particularly, connects to an event tomorrow. What I want to do today is to remember Devout Jews meticulously celebrated the Passover. And we, as the people of God, are called to celebrate the Lord's Supper. Peter Inns, a, a scholar from Westminster Presbyterian uh, Theological Seminary in the West, um, recounts a time where when he was doing his graduate studies at Harvard, he had uh, several Jewish professors who uh, gave him new insight into the text said he was really rather stunned by what they brought to the text, uh, among other things. He said, routinely, my Jewish professors could quote from memory the entire Pentateuch. That's the first five books of the Old Testament by heart in Hebrew. He said, on one occasion, I got the uh, temerity to ask one of my professors why he did something. Because he said what we would do is ask a question about a particular section of the text. Let's say Exodus 22.4. And the professor would raise his hands, head and close his eyes and look up 
and silence and then drop his head and begin to quote it. Where we might have turned to the text, the verse, and read it. And he said, well, Prof, what, what prompts you to do that? He said, well, because all my life as a child, I heard the Hebrew text chanted in the synagogue. So I close my eyes and raise my head and I hear it come back. And when I do, I repeat it to you as prose. Amazing. The Old Testament scripture, especially in Deuteronomy, challenged the people of God to hide the word of God in their hearts. That wasn't just figurative. It was like commit it to yourself in memory. Stamp it on your foreheads and on your hands. Make it a part of your life. Could I say it this way? Don't forget to remember. Make it so much a part of your life, it just comes out. Deuteronomy called for a private memorization and recitation of the Torah and a public one as well. On occasion, the celebration of the Lord's, uh, the celebration of the Passover was more family oriented and sometimes it was more corporate. But consistently, the Exodus called for people to remember. It called for them to enter ritual. That's not a word we're real comfortable with, is it? Ritual. As a matter of fact, it's one of the hang-ups of modern evangelical types. We think we're so blessed with creativity and spontaneity and spirit-led insight that we've dispensed with the ritual. Not so important. It's what's God doing and speaking to me right now. It's more like, are we there yet, God? What are you doing next, God? Can you get me out of this one, God? That's our revelation. But this text calls us to stop it already. To stop looking forward so much and to look back and to remember. And to find in remembrance deep truth about life. Yeah, the importance of ritual, like communion, like reading the scripture and committing it to memory, like the creeds that we read and frequently do on communion Sunday. It's important. You know, newer is not always better, and an abbreviation is not always best, but somehow we've fallen into that pattern. I love the words of Jaroslav Pelikan, a church historian slash theologian, when he addressed this issue. He said, traditionalism is the dead faith of the living. Traditionalism is the dead faith of the living. Tradition is the living faith of the dead In tradition, you enter into ancient words like these. 
and the living faith of those who have gone before us enlightens our hearts by faith. And our eyes are open to new things that really are contemporary and ancient all at once. But we so easily forget and we almost never look back. I invite you to do that today. Especially when we approach the Lord's table. And I invite you to do this as well. To anticipate this reality. Three things. It helps us to remember. Here and here. It helps us to remember. Because we so easily forget. That's what the tradition and the ritual of the church calls us back to. I forget so easily. And the tradition says, no, come back to the table. Come back to the Scripture. Confess your sins together and remember. We so easily forget. We return to this tradition and we repeat ancient words because repetition takes us deeper into meaning. You know how it is. I mean, even apart from the Scripture, when you know that poem and can recite it and continue to recite it, a certain depth emerges from it. The Scriptures are that way. The tradition is that way. The Lord's table is that way. The more you repeat it, the deeper you go in terms of understanding. Not because it's new, but because its newness is ancient. And from that ancient reality emerges life. We remember and we return because like this table, it creates a space. A mystical supernatural space for God to do something in our life. That's why we remember. So I invite you not to think ahead about next week, but to remember and let God do His work. Let's pray. Our gracious Lord, we thank you. Um, for the memory you've given us in the scriptures, for the deep, rich tradition that you've delivered to us through your church, for the saints that have gone before us whose living faith can become ours. We thank you, Lord, for this particular day that we call Communion Sunday, when on the first Sunday of the month we celebrate your death, burial, and resurrection. And as we do so, Lord, we pray you will allow it to help us to remember what we so easily forget. Our world just comes at us so fast. The pace of life overwhelms us. The duties and the responsibilities that are legitimately ours keep us from stopping long enough to remember, and so we easily forget. And these next few moments remind us of your grace. 
as we enter these moments and repeat things that we've said before, we pray that the elements here and the words associated with them, when repeated once again, will deepen our understanding of your grace. And Lord, we pray that in these next few moments, as we celebrate the death, burial, and resurrection of the living Christ, that you will make a space in our hearts to hear and to understand and to be changed. And we'll thank you for that grace. In Christ's name, amen. One of the ancient traditions uh, of the church has been corporate confession. Not just private confession, good as that may be, but corporate confession where the people of God enter into the same words and submit to the reality that is humanity, that is sinful humanity in the face of a holy God. And we confess together. So I'm going to invite you to join me in a prayer of confession. This one's going to come straight from the Scripture itself, written by David as a prayer to God as we prepare our hearts for communion. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sins. For I am and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Surely you desire truth in the inner parts. You teach me wisdom in the inmost place. Cleanse me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. I'm going to invite you to just pause for a moment in utter silence before our risen Lord as you open your hearts to him by faith. O oh, gracious God, to you who all hearts are open and all desires are known, we confess ourselves as sinners and ask for your grace. And then, Lord, we confidently affirm what John taught us to affirm when he said that those who confess their sins are faithful and just to forgive them their sins and to cleanse them from all unrighteousness. And based on that declaration, we can say together and rejoice because our sins are forgiven. Amen.
We often say on this day that this table is not the table of the evangelical community church. It's the table of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so it's open to all of you, no matter what your denominational background. If Christ is your Lord, you're welcome to come forward and partake of this bread and take that bread and dip it into the cup, which represents the body and blood of Jesus Christ. It was on the night that Jesus was betrayed. He took the bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you eat and drink in remembrance of me. For when you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The way we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes in the second service at ECC is we participate by way of intention, which is we ask you to come from the back to the front, beginning with the back rows, and if you can, remember to exit the outside aisles. That would be great. There will be a station here and here and there where you can tear off a piece of the bread, dip it into the cup, and partake in the very life-giving body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. I'll ask the ushers to come forward to uh, serve communion.